The Daily Independent Supplement Virginia City, Nevada Saturday, October 31, 1874 Lecture on Mines and Mining Delivered by Adolf Sutro At Piper's Opera House, Virginia City and in all the principal towns and mining camps in the state of Nevada. Fellow citizens, ladies and gentlemen, before entering upon the subject of my lecture on mines and mining, I hope you will pardon me if I shall take up a portion of your time for the purpose of saying a few words in regard to the history of the Sutro Tunnel. This great work and my connections therewith have been so long and so outrageously misrepresented by parties whose sole aim and object appears to be to get control of it for themselves, that I deem it my duty to set myself right before my fellow citizens. I first conceived the idea of running a deep tunnel to the Comstock Lode shortly after its discovery, at my first visit to this section in the spring of 1860. The undertaking, however, was of so gigantic a nature and received so little encouragement that I did not take any active steps in the matter until the fall of 1864, when I concluded to apply to the Nevada legislature, which was to meet in the January following for a franchise to construct such a tunnel. On the 4th of February, 1865, the legislature granted a franchise, which gave me the right of way, similar to that usually granted to toll roads, except that at my own request, no rates were fixed as to the amount of toll to be paid after its completion. I preferred to leave these rates to be voluntarily agreed upon by the various mining companies. After some lengthy negotiations, the larger portion of the mining companies then working on the Comstock load, representing 95% of its value, in order to establish a basis for procuring the necessary capital, agreed to pay a toll of $2 per ton on every ton of pay ore, which should be extracted after the tunnel should be completed, and after it should benefit each respective mine, and contracts were entered into making this charge a lien upon the mines for all future time. After these contracts had been made, it was considered necessary, as a security to capitalists, that the United States government should pass a law embodying the general features of the Act of the Nevada Legislature and these contracts, for at that time the companies working the mines on the Comstock load held them at mere sufferance from the government, the title or fee being in the United States. In consequence, in June 1866, I proceeded to Ashington, and on the 25th day of July of that year, an act was passed by Congress, now commonly known as the Sutro Tunnel Act, which gave me the right of way over the public domain, the right to purchase some land at the mouth of the tunnel, the ownership of all new mines which should be discovered for 2,000 feet on each side of the tunnel, and made it a lien on the land occupied by these mining companies to pay the same rates of charges which had been previously agreed upon in the above-mentioned contracts. In other words, the United States government, as owner of these mineral lands, entered into a direct compact with us for the construction of this tunnel and only referred to the contracts in order to establish the rates which should be paid. After this law of Congress had been passed, I proceeded to the city of New York, where I placed the subject before prominent capitalists and explained to them the merits of our undertaking. They looked upon it as a magnificent one, 
and so expressed themselves in a letter addressed to me, at the same time stating that if the mining companies and the people of the Pacific coast, familiar with the value of the mines, would evince their confidence in the undertaking by subscribing half a million dollars towards the work, they would be willing to invest three or four or five million dollars required to carry it to completion. In consequence, I returned to San Francisco and at once placed the law of Congress and the letter addressed to me by these capitalists of New York before the mining companies and showed them that by becoming shareholders in the tunnel company, they would derive much benefit therefrom. I showed to them that while their mines were productive, they would not feel the paltry amount which they might have to contribute in the way of tolls, and while unproductive, the dividends derived from the tunnel would enable them to develop their mines without the aid of assessments. The honest portion of mining trustees saw the power of my argument, and after the subject had been considered for some weeks, they subscribed over $600,000, while private individuals subscribed over $200,000 to the stock of our company. In the meantime, however, the legislature of Nevada had again met, and I concluded to ask that body to memorialize Congress to aid us in the execution of our gigantic enterprise. I appeared before the legislature and explained that in my intercourse with moneyed people in the East, I had found great ignorance in regard to our vast mineral resources. And the first question I would generally be asked was, what assurance is there? that the Comstock load will extend downward 2,000 feet to the point where the tunnel will cut it. It mattered not how much I demonstrated by geological and scientine reasoning that great fissure veins extend downward indefinitely. Moneyed men, who are the most unscientific class of people in the world, could not be made to see it in that light. Bankers or moneylenders are brought up to believe in nothing but solid facts. If you want to borrow a thousand dollars from a capitalist, he holds out one hand for the collaterals before he lets the money go from the other. It struck me that such an exploration as would be brought about by means of our work, an exploration which would show the condition of this great mineral load at a point five thousand feet from the surface, while the deepest shaft ever sunk by man only reached a depth of two thousand seven hundred feet, would give an increased value to our whole mineral domain. I explained this to the members of the Nevada legislature, and they became so thoroughly convinced of the truth and the soundness of the reasoning that they at once memorialized Congress and asked that such material aid should be given as would ensure the early completion of our work. They set forth in their memorial, in the most convincing manner, what advantages would be derived from its construction, and many who read the document said Congress could not refuse to grant the request. At that time, almost everybody was favorable to our undertaking, and the Nevada legislature, after I had left Carson, showed their high appreciation by unanimously passing resolutions of thanks in the name of the people of our state, introduced by the Honorable Chas A. Sumner, then a senator from Story County, for the valuable services which I had rendered already at that early day. A facsimile of these responses is here represented. The passage of this memorial to Congress, however, proved to be the most unfortunate step which in the whole course of our undertaking I had taken. For this same document, this same memorial, which was intended to convince Congress of the merits of the enterprise and the necessity of granting aid, fell into the hands of the mining manipulators of San Francisco, and they concluded, after reading the same, 
that Congress certainly could not refuse to render the asked for assistance, so they put their heads together to devise some way of substituting themselves into my place. They considered that by the aid of the representatives from the Pacific Coast, whom they controlled, they could easily manage to get from Congress not only the two or three million which I might have asked, but fifteen or twenty million which they expected to divide among themselves. In other words, they saw a chance for robbing the government, and accordingly a conspiracy was formed to drive me away from the great work which I had undertaken to carry out. In secret conclave they determined to break me up financially and to substitute themselves into my place. What did they do in order to carry out their plans? Why, the first step was to cause the mining companies at their annual meetings to repudiate the subscriptions which their trustees had made. This was in the spring of 1867, when the contracts were in full force and power. They thought that by repudiating these subscriptions, I would be left helpless, and with their great power arrayed against me, I would soon give up in despair. But they got hold of the wrong man, for I was not to be ousted so easily. Their war commenced at that time, and has been kept up ever since, but I have not given up yet. The tunnel is being pushed forward day and night, and in two or three years it will be completed to the Comstock load in spite of the Bank of California and all the hirelings connected with that institution. They succeeded in making the mining companies repudiate their subscriptions, and so did the private citizens who had subscribed, for they thought that as long as the Bank of California was now my enemy, I would be unable to proceed with the work. And what did these mining shops do next? They formed the Virginia and Truckee Railroad Company, and made these mining companies subscribe the identical sums which they had robbed me of to what is now known as Bill Sharon's Crooked Railroad. They not only made the mining companies give them this money which rightfully belonged to us, but also made the counties of Story, Ormsby, and Lyon make them a present of $650 in bonds. They built this road with that identical money, and today complains that the completion of our tunnel will depress the value of their road. I saw it was useless for me to attempt to get assistance on the Pacific coast with such opposition, and returned to New York where, on my arrival, I found a placard in the office of the Bank of California announcing that the Savage Mining Company had repudiated its subscription of $150,000. It was placed there as a warning to the people of New York so as to prevent any financial assistance at that place. I next proceeded to Europe, where I met many scientific men in England, France and Germany. I placed before them my plans for the construction of this tunnel, and many were the letters addressed to me by these distinguished men congratulating me on the great work which I had undertaken. I tried to get financial aid during my journey, but at that time a war between Prussia and France was imminent, and it was impossible to secure any funds for a foreign enterprise. In December 1867, I returned to the United States and proceeded to Washington, presented to Congress the memorial which the Nevada legislature had passed. At first, senators and members of Congress were shy and apt to ridicule the idea of giving aid to such a work, but after I had been in Washington 60 days, I found that the leading men of the country, the men of large brains and big hearts, understood the magnitude of the proposition and were ready to favor it by word and by vote. Among others, 
I found a warm friend in the Honorable Thaddeus Stevens of Pennsylvania. He understood the whole question at a glance. He promised to aid me in every manner, but he did not live long enough to render the proffered assistance. Matters were progressing in the most promising manner, notwithstanding the secret machinations of the Bank of California to defeat me. They had their agents at Washington who had instruction to do everything in their power to prevent my success, and many letters and telegrams were sent when they found that my prospects were good, one of which I was fortunate enough to secure, and which I here reproduce. Virginia, Nevada, January 15, 1868 To the Honorable William Stewart and James W. Nye We are opposed to the Sutro Tunnel Project and desire it defeated if possible. William Sharon, Charles Bonner, Superintendent, Savage Company B. F. Sherwood, President, Central Company John B. Winters, President, Yellow Jacket Company John P. Jones, Superintendent, Kentuck Company J. W. Mackett, Superintendent, Bullion Company Thos G. Taylor, President Alpha and Superintendent, Crown Point and Best and Betcher Company F. A. Trifle, President, Belcher Company Isaac L. Requa, Superintendent, Collar Potosi Company the measure would certainly have passed at the session of Congress had it not been for the impeachment trial of Andrew Johnson, which commenced at about that time and which occupied so much of the remainder of the session that no time was left for any legislation of the character, such as I asked. I now returned once more to California and Nevada, where I found that the Virginia and Truckee Railroad was being constructed, and the opposition to our work by the Bauk Party was growing stronger and stronger as time rolled on and these parties found that I persistently clung to and pressed forward the importance of our undertaking. During the summer of 1869, the House Committee on Ways and Means visited Virginia City, and it was my good fortune, as it turned out, at the next session of Congress, to having met these gentlemen and explained to them the merits of our work. I saw that the bank ring were becoming more and more anxious to get hold of our rights and franchises, and since they were prejudicing the people through a venal press against me, I concluded to address the people of Virginia City on the questions involved. On the 19th day of September, I addressed the miners of Story County at Piper's Opera House in Virginia City and in a lengthy speech explained to them the merits of our undertaking and showed up the villainous machinations of the bank ring. At the conclusion of my speech, the excitement was so intense that the miners talked of hanging the leaders of the bank party, and I had to now go among them in order to pacify them and prevent them from carrying their threat into execution. Shortly after I had made this speech, the miners' union agreed to subscribe $50,000 towards starting the work, and the day fixed for the commencement of actual excavation on the tunnel. On the day announced, the people marched with bands of music to the proposed site, and the first blow of the pick was struck. Since that time, the work has been going on without interruption, day and night, and I am proud to say that the tunnel has penetrated at this day a length of 7,500 feet, and now with the progress which is now being made, that is over 300 feet per month, we expect to cut the Comstock load in less than three years. The bank ring became alarmed at seeing the work thus progressing, and a few months later, that is to say in the spring of 1870, while I was superintending our work, 
I received telegrams from Washington stating that a bill had been introduced called an Act Explanatory of the Sutro Tunnel Act, and I was advised to hurry to Washington immediately. I started at once, and upon my arrival, I found that such a bill had been introduced by Thos Fitch, the only representative in Congress of Nevada, who, notwithstanding the professions of friendship for our work and myself, had proved to have become a hired hunky of the Bank of California. His bill, in order to keep it dark, had not even been printed. It was well termed an explanatory bill, for its object was to explain away our rights. Having learned that this bill had been referred to the Committee on Mines and Mining, I appeared on the first opportunity before that committee and found myself opposed by all the legal talents the California Bank could muster at Washington. I had no money to employ lawyers, and so unaccustomed to cope with gentlemen of the legal profession, I was compelled to and did appear before that committee to argue my own case, and after the most thorough and careful examination into all the questions involved, eight members out of nine composing that committee came to the conclusion that the proposed legislation was an outrage on our vested rights. The one man on that committee who alone advocated the passage of that bill was Aaron A. Sargent, another tool of the Bank of California and the Central Pacific Railroad Company. I supposed the matter would now be dropped, but I was much mistaken, for when the mining committee was called in the house, I found that Sargent appeared with his minority report of one from that committee, advocating the passage of the Fitch Bill, notwithstanding the adverse report of eight out of nine of the committee. A great battle on the floor of the house ensued, it was found that nearly all the members from the Pacific Coast who were either elected or controlled by the Bank of California advocated a repeal of our rights, while the senators from Nevada, William M. Stewart and James W. Nye, appeared on the floor of the House to lobby the bill through. After a severe contest lasting through the morning hours of three days, a vote was taken, and the bank party, by swapping, trading and threatening, managed to get 42 votes, while on our side, we had 124. I now thought the controversy ended. But not more than 30 days had elapsed when a general mining bill came up in the United States Senate, which, upon examination, I found to contain a clause which would have accomplished the same object as the Fitch bill. I submitted the question to that able lawyer and honorable gentleman, Senator Lyman Trumbull of Illinois, and after an examination on the subject, he agreed to offer an amendment when the subject should come before the Senate, to the effect that nothing contained in the bill should be construed to interfere with our rights. I told him Senator Stewart would object to any such amendment, but he was of the opinion that no senator would object to so reasonable a clause. I assured him of his error, and told him he had better watch the matter carefully. On the day when the bill was reached, Senator Trumbull inquired of the senator from Nevada whether anything in that bill was intended to affect the rights of Sutro. Stewart replied, not in the slightest degree. There was nothing in the bill which could even remotely affect him. Trumbull then said, that being the case, the senator from Nevada would not object to the adoption of the amendment so declaring. But Stewart said he did object, and he made a most desperate fight to defeat it. After a full discussion embracing part of two days, a vote was taken and only one solitary nay was uttered against the amendment. 
Need I tell you that this nay was Bill Stewart's? Several other attempts were made in the following sessions of Congress to smuggle through underhanded legislation intended to affect our rights, but I will not weary you with reciting them, but will simply state that each of them was signally defeated. In the spring of 1878, I found it necessary for the purpose of making some financial arrangements to proceed to Europe. In the fall of that year, while I was in London, it was reported by agents of the Bank of California in that city, who kept watch of my movements, that I had succeeded in making a loan for $8 million. They telegraphed at once to San Francisco, and this intelligence so alarmed the bank party that they called together all their colleagues in manipulating mines on the Comstock load to raise a subscription of $200,000 in gold coin, ostensibly for the purpose of commencing legal proceedings against us, but really to be used for corrupt purposes in Congress. My friends in San Francisco informed me of this fact by telegraph, and on the first day of February of this year, 1874, not being quite ready to leave London at that time, I concluded to address letters to all senators and members of Congress informing them of the fact of the existence of this corruption fund and asked them to be on the lookout for underhanded legislation which I expected would be attempted at that session of Congress. I considered afterward that it would be safer for me to be there myself and accordingly sailed from Liverpool, making my appearance in Washington on the 22nd of February of this year. I at once examined all the bills which had been introduced on the first day of the session by my old enemy, Sargent, who in the meantime, through the moneyed influence of the Bank of California and the Central Pacific Railroad Company, had been elected to the United States Senate. This bill was called Senate Bill 16 and was evidently intended to allow those mining companies on the Comstock load that had not taken out their patents as yet to escape doing so by making all proceedings for patents had by them null and void. By the Sutro Tunnel Act of 1866, each mining company on the Comstock load was compelled to take its patent subject to the provisions of that act, which had to be distinctly set forth in each patent. But they had another object in view, which they meant to accomplish by Sargent's Senate Bill 16. The Crown Point and the Belcher Mining Companies had originally made their locations on a load dipping to the westward, which after having been to a depth of four or five hundred feet, entirely gave out. They then proceeded to drift in various directions and at last found another ledge dipping to the eastward and which proved to be enormously rich. From that ledge they have extracted over fifty million dollars and knowing that if they were compelled to take out a United States patent under their original application, they would be forced to return to their old location, thereby losing the mines they are at present working, and besides being held liable for the large sums already extracted, they determined to get rid of their applications, either preferring to hold their mines without any patent at all, or take their chances of getting one under a new application to be made in the future, after their location had been shifted to suit them. These were the objects they had in view when they tried to smuggle through Sargent's bill. After I discovered the true meaning of that bill, which, by the way, had already passed the Senate and the House Committee on Mines and Mining, I concluded to say nothing until the day the bill would be reached in the House. I then made some of my friends in that body acquainted with its true character, and an amendment was offered thereto by the Honorable William Holman of Indiana, to the effect that nothing in the bill 
should affect our rights. But this by itself was not altogether satisfactory. After all the attempts which had been made for so many years to rob us of our vested rights, I considered that Congress was in justice bound to protect us by compelling the parties who were working these mines, the same being a portion of the public domain for which they did not have the shadow of a title, to take out their patents under their original applications. In consequence, the Honorable James S. Negley of Pennsylvania offered another amendment requiring parties on the Comstock load who had not yet taken out their patents to do so within six months, in default of which they would forfeit their rights. This simple provision could not possibly have worked hardship to anyone, for it would mainly have affected the Belcher and the Crown Point mining companies, the richest companies on the load, and would have forced them to take government title and pay the paltry sum of 4% per acre for their mines, amounting in the aggregate to $200 each, which they refused to pay to the government. That amendment fell like a bombshell in the camp of the bank ring, the telegraph was set in motion, and all the flunky newspapers on the Pacific coast, whom the bank party could control, commenced heaping abuse upon me, claiming that this legislation increased our rights, while on the contrary, it did neither increase or decrease the rights of either party. From day to day, their editorials, filled with the vilest abuse and falsehoods, were telegraphed onto Washington at an expense of not less than a thousand dollars a day. So apparent, however, was the justice of the Negley Amendment that it passed the House by an overwhelming majority. But nine members could be found to vote against its passage, among whom Charles W. Kendall, the only representative from Nevada who, it seems, had been induced to follow in the footsteps of Tom Fitch and become a traitor to the people whom he represented by joining the bank party. Senate Bill No. 16, with both the amendments of Holman and Negley, went over to the Senate, where it was referred to the Committee on Mines and Mining. In the meantime, consultations of the Bank Party, which was much frightened, were held from day to day, and not being sure of the Mining Committee, they managed, by some means unexplained, to get Senator Chandler of Michigan to resign, while Senator Jones of Nevada, a large owner in the Crown Point Mine, was placed in his stead on that committee. I did not like these proceedings, and so when the day was set for the argument of the case, I went before it, together with the Honorable Jeremiah S. Black of Pennsylvania, who had been retained as our counsel, and turning to the chairman of that committee, the Honorable Hannibal Hamlin of Maine, I asked permission to put a few questions to some of the members of that committee. My request having been granted... I inquired of Senator Jones whether he owned any interest in the Crown Point mine. He admitted that he did, and by further questioning him I showed clearly that he owned large interests antagonistically to us, and that he was the bitter enemy to the Sutro Tunnel. Turning next to Senator Sargent, I asked him whether he was opposed to our work. He said that he considered our undertaking a great iniquity. I now declared I did not wish to question him any further, and turning to the chairman of the committee, respectfully submitted my request that this bill should be referred to some other committee where none of the members had any interest in the subject matter, and where I would be sure to get a fair hearing. We outsiders then retired, and after, as it was rumoured, a very stormy debate, 
the majority of the committee concluded to recommend that the bill be referred to the Judiciary Committee of the Senate. This committee, consisting of some of the ablest lawyers of the Senate, after a most careful examination of all the questions involved, which lasted over a month, came to the conclusion that Congress had no power to interfere with our vested rights and that if any controversy in regard to the Sutro Tunnel Act of 1866 should arise, it should be left to the judicial tribunals and for that reason recommended that Sergeant's Senate and the amendments be indefinitely postponed. That action practically ended the controversy in Congress. The Bank Party, who in 1870 declared through their agents on the floor of the House of Representatives that they could not go to law, for the Act of 1866 was so plain that they would at once be thrown out of the courts, and that therefore it was necessary for Congress to intercede in their behalf by legislation, now received but cool comfort from the unanimous decision of the Judiciary Committee, that the only remedy at their command would be to institute legal proceedings if they had any grievances. After this decision, they telegraphed to California, through their hired agents at Washington, that they had killed the Sutro Tunnel Project, and that I was utterly dead. I do not believe that I am quite dead yet. I think I am altogether too lively to suit the Bank of California. They wanted to make the people of the Pacific Coast believe that they had won a great victory, when the fact was, they had suffered a terrible defeat. I hope I may be pardoned for having taken up so much of your time with these lengthy explanations, but the misrepresentations in regard to this matter, which have been made by our enemies, are so outrageous that I deemed it my duty to set myself right before the people of Nevada. Fellow citizens, I shall now proceed, as a part of the subject of my lecture, to say a few words in regard to the geological history of this remarkable section of country. According to Baron von Richthofen and other eminent geologists, Mount Davidson, consisting of cyanite, existed millions of years ago and a long geological period of time before the surrounding country made its appearance. Mount Davidson at that time formed an isolated island peak, which, after the waters subsided, stood there on the vast and extensive plains looming up above all its neighbors. After a further period of many thousands of years had elapsed, a great volcanic convulsion took place, which brought up the propolite, or green stone, forming the mountains now surrounding Mount Davidson. Still one more geological period passed by, when yet another great convulsion rent the propolite country in twain and brought up the trachytic mountains, rising 2,000 feet above the adjacent valley. So great was the pressure from beneath, at the time the trachyte, which came up in a semi-fluid state, made its appearance, that the whole of the greenstone country became uplifted, and the line of contact between the greenstone and the cyanite, being the plane of least resistance, a great fissure was formed at that point, following the inclination of ancient Mount Davidson at an angle of 45 degrees, which is now known as the Comstock Lode. The greenstone conry, at the same time, became rent open in many other places, forming a number of mineral loads or veins which will be cut before the Sutro Tunnel reaches the Comstock Lode. The trachyte conry being the last geological formation and having remained undisturbed since its formation, contains no mineral veins whatever. While we have annexed diagram before us, I will embrace the opportunity of saying a few words in regard to the Sutro Tunnel itself. 
It starts in Atza Point A, in Carson Valley, and running in a westerly direction, four miles, will cut the Comstock load at a perpendicular depth of 2,000 feet. In order to expedite the work, we started four shafts, marked number one, number two, number three, and number four, about one mile apart from each other. Shaft number one reached the tunnel level over two years ago and proceeded in each direction. The easterly drift of that shaft met the header of the tunnel and so accurate were the surveys that the variation did not exceed a single inch. Shaft number two reached a depth of 1,044 feet in April last and after drifting 200 feet in each direction, a large body of water was encountered in the westerly drift which rushed in with such force that the men at work there barely escaped with their lives, while it felled the shaft to a depth of 900 feet. This water has a temperature of 90 degrees, and it is quite probable that a mineral load exists at that point, which cannot be explored until the main tunnel will reach that shaft, drawing off the water by its own flow, which we expect to do by the 1st of April of next year. Shaft number three, which would have a depth of 1,485 feet, has now reached a depth of 700 feet, leaving 785 feet yet to be sunk. The next diagram represents the Comstock load, when an open fissure, and as I have already stated at the time of the appearance of the trachyte, the pressure from underneath was so great that it uplifted the greenstone country, forming a fissure at the point of contact between the propolite or greenstone and the cyanite. This fissure, following the slope of Mount Davidson, received an inclination of 45 degrees, and it would have been impossible to remain open for a single instant since the superincumbent masses of propolite, B, fell from the hanging country into the fissure and sliding down, wedged in, forming a support for the superincumbent mass. Then, though the fissure became filled up to a large extent by the fallen masses, it still left an open channel to the great laboratory in the interior of the earth. This fissure thus remained open during many ages, during when it became gradually filled with the mineral matter and quartz which we find today composing the Comstock load. The theories with regard to the filling of fissures are many and various, Many of them have only been made to be upset again. Within the last 20 or 30 years, however, the theory of volatilization has, among the scientific men of the world, gained considerably, and I myself believe that the Comstock load was filled in that manner. It may appear strange to you to hear of gold, silver, iron, copper, and other metals going off in the form of a vapor, but still, if you reflect for a moment, you will see that it is not so strange after all. You know that all matter in the world is found in one of three forms, the gaseous, the liquid, or the solid. If we take water, for instance, we find it ordinarily as a liquid, while a little heat converts it into steam, thus changing it to the gaseous form, and a little cold converts it into the solid form, or into ice. We also know that the various metals are ordinarily found in the solid form, while the application of heat will change them into liquids, and I have no doubt but that under the proper circumstances and with sufficient heat, they could all be volatilized. Some years ago, the refiner and melter of the San Francisco Mayut was charged with being a defaulter. 
a commission was sent out by the United States government to examine his accounts. He told the commissioners that the missing gold had gone up the chimney, which statement raised a smile whenever mentioned. This gentleman insisted upon an examination of the surrounding roofs, which to gratify him was made, and to their astonishment upon washing the dust and refuse collected from the neighboring roofs, they found a large quantity of gold mixed therewith. Now I simply cite this instance in order to show that gold may be volatilized, and while considerable gold was found upon those roofs, I do not mean to assert that all the missing gold went up that chimney. I will now dismiss these theories. I will simply state that today we find the vein matter between the cyanite, A, and the propiate, B, to consist of quartz intermixed with gold and silver going downwards at an angle of 45 degrees to infinite depth. The miners, in descending upon this vein matter every now and then, encounter these falling masses which they call horses, and the best proof that the Comstock load was once an open fissure consists in the fact that every horse found in the vein is composed of prophylite or greenstone, which, forming the hanging country, fell down into the open fissure, for being at the bottom, it could not detach itself and find its way into the fissure. In the next illustration, we have a bird's-eye view of the Comstock immediately after its formation. The central portion, marked A, represents the synthetic Mount Davidson, while all the surrounding hills, marked B, consist of propylite or greenstone. It will be seen that the fissure, in a semicircular form, followed the contact between the greenstone and the cyanite, while at the southern and northern extremities it shot off in a straight line and probably divided into several branches, one of which below Gold Hill extends across American Hat, while the other follows down Gold Canyon. The next illustration gives us a longitudinal section of the Comstock Lode, showing the workings of the different mines and the branches from the Sutro Tunnel. After the main tunnel and these branches will be completed, the shafts will be connected with a tunnel and instead of pumping and hoisting the water and ore to the surface, as is now being done, the former will flow off by itself, while the ore will fall down to the tunnel level by its own weight. The tunnel itself will form a new basis of operations, from which mining downward can be carried on at less cost than it is possible to do from the surface, as I shall explain in the course of my lecture. The shaded part of the diagram shows those portions of the mines which have thus far yielded $200 million in gold and silver bullion. After geological explanations, I will now proceed to show you some views of the Sutro Tunnel, the shafts and buildings attached thereto. First, we have a view of the entrance to the tunnel itself, with its heavy supports of timbers 12 inches square and 5 feet apart. The tunnel is provided with a double railroad track, while at the top an 8-inch galvanized iron pipe conveys fresh air to the miners now at work 7,500 feet from that point. We next have a view of the exterior of the machine shop near the mouth of the tunnel, to the right of which is a building used for offices and dwelling. This shop contains all the various tools and machines required to keep in good running order the large amount of machinery required in the construction of the tunnel. The next illustration shows us on a larger scale the building used as offices and dwelling. Now, ladies and gentlemen, 
After having shown you these few views near the entrance of the tunnel, if you will follow me up the mountain toward Virginia City, we will reach the different works along our line. One mile from the entrance to the tunnel, shaft number one is situated, which, as I have already stated, has reached a depth of 523 feet and has been connected with the tunnel long since. The buildings are now being used for the manufacture of compressed air to propel the drills employed in the header. Next is a view of the machinery, consisting of hoisting and pumping machinery contained in this building. Stepping back now a few hundred yards to the eastward, from an elevated point we get a good view of shaft number one, which may be seen on the right-hand side of the picture, while on the left is the boarding and lodging house attached to the shaft. Looming up behind over 1,500 feet in height may be seen Mount Rose, a portion of the Trachytic Range. You can form some idea of the magnitude of our work if you consider that our tunnel is progressing at a point 523 feet below this shaft building and penetrating these great Trachytic Mountains, under the summit of which the miners are present at work in constructing the tunnel. Proceeding up to the top of the mountain, from which a magnificent view may be had of Carson Valley and the mountains beyond, and descending into the ravine immediately west, we come to shaft number two, which has a depth of 1,041 feet. The interior of this building contains the hosting and pumping machinery usually employed in works of this kind. One mile further on from this place, we come to shaft number three, the interior of which shows the engines in use at this shaft. In the front part of the engine room are seen some iron pipes, 10 inches in diameter, which are ready to be lowered into the shaft for pumping up the water. Still one mile further west of this point, we reach the last works on our line, shaft number four. This building contains more ponderous machinery than any heretofore met with. The hoisting engine at this point has a capacity to bring up the rock from a depth of 1,500 feet. Proceeding a little further west, in a turn of the road, Virginia City suddenly bursts into view, with Mount Davidson looming up behind it. Virginia City itself is built upon the greenstone country next to its contact with the cyanite, and more than 1,500 feet below its houses, 3,000 miners are engaged in their arduous task at all hours of the day and night. A portion of Gold Hill is shown in the next illustration with its old trestle works and hoisting machinery, which have of late years mostly given way to more substantial improvements on shafts situated further east. Fellow citizens, after having given you a sketch of the geological history of the Washoe Mountain Range, which contains the Comstock Load, and after having explained and shown to you the works of the Sutro Tunnel, I will now proceed to make a few remarks on the present system of mining, as employed on the Comstock load, and the system which will come into practice when the Sutro Tunnel will be completed. I desire to call your special attention to this portion of my lecture, and have no doubt that it will prove useful as well as instructive. We have here before us a mining shaft, supposed to extend from the surface of the earth at Virginia City down to the tunnel level, which gives it a depth of 2,000 feet. In order to more clearly illustrate to you what it means to mine through shafts 2,000 feet in depth, I have had placed at the bottom of this shaft views representing the Capitol building at Washington, the tallest building in the United States, 
and the Church of St. Paul in London, one of the tallest edifices in the world. Now recollect that as mining is now carried on, every gallon of water and every ton of rock have to be hoisted from the bottom of this deep shaft, and pumping is not as easy a task as is generally supposed. Water cannot be pumped 2,000 feet in one lift, for it would be almost impossible to construct pipes and pumps of sufficient strength to withstand the pressure. Practical experience has shown that lifts of 200 feet are most advantageous, and they have been so arranged on the Comstock load. You will perceive along the lines of the shaft excavations at distances of 200 feet apart. These are pump stations, the water being pumped from the bottom into the first station tank, from there it is pampered into the second tank, and again into the next tank, and so on until it passes through ten tanks and pumps before it reaches the surface. So, now, every gallon of water has to be pumped ten times in order to get rid of it. The expense of keeping these ten pumps in motion is simply enormous, besides the never-ceasing trouble and delay occasioned by their getting out of order. The opponents of our work have again and again declared that the water in the Comstock load is merely confined to a belt near the surface. The best evidence, however, that this statement is not correct is found in the fact that the water encountered in the lower levels has a temperature of 120 degrees, showing conclusively that it comes up from seawater depth. When the tunnel should be completed, it will cut these shafts at their bottom, and the water will run out by itself, precisely as if we were to pull out the plug from the bottom of a barrel filled with water. Then it must be considered that pumping is a never-ceasing labor. You may pump 365 days in the year, and if you stop for one single day, your mine will fill with water and stop all operations. After the shafts have reached below the tunnel level, the water may be pumped into the tunnel and thus save 2,000 feet of pumping. For the tunnel opens up a new base of operations, while mining can be carried on under more advantageous circumstances below that point that existed at the very surface, as I will explain in the course of this lecture. It is not only the water which has to be pumped this great height, but every ton of rock has to be lifted also from the bottom of these deep shafts, while after the completion of the tunnel, the rock will fall down by its own weight at hardly any expense at all. The top of this shaft is covered with extensive buildings containing a number of pumps and requires an enormous consumption of fuel, and the employment of a large staff of persons to attend to the machinery besides the never-ending expense of repairs. I do not know but that you may see, if you look sharp, the figures of three small men alongside these buildings. Those are the little fellows who are opposed to our great work. In order to give you a clear idea of the character of the mining operations which are now carried on, I will now present to your view a number of squares. The lower one, the large square, represents the dead weight, equal to 15,000 tons, which is daily lifted from the mines. 2,000 tons of ore are extracted daily, besides 1,000 tons of waste rock. Since but one ton of rock is lifted at a time, the cable with cage and car have to be lifted 3,000 times in 24 hours.
the steel wire cable weighs four tons, the cage half a ton, and the car half a ton, which makes five tons altogether. And this multiplied by 3,000 will give 15,000 tons of dead weight to be raised every day. After the tunnel shall be completed, no more dead weight will have to be lifted, for the ore and bedrock will fall to the level of the tunnel by the laws of gravitation. The next largest square represents the 8,640 tons of water which have to be pumped daily from that deep shaft. The next square represents the 2,000 tons of ore, and the one next to that, the 1,000 tons of waste rock, which are hoisted every day. After the ore reaches the surface, it is carried over more than 20 miles of railroad to the mills situated on Carson River, where it goes through the complicated process of reduction. And now, after all this has been done, after all the labor of lifting the dead weight, the ore and the waste rock, after the transportation of the ore and its reduction, the result of the whole operation is shown by the little black speck near the upper right-hand corner, which represents the one ton of gold and silver bullion, the result of all these manifold operations. This ton of bullion has a value, however, of forty to fifty thousand dollars. You will perceive from this that no more wasteful plan for mining could possibly be adopted. Just consider, 26,640 tons to be lifted, besides the transportation and reduction of the ore, to get one single ton of gold and silver bullion. After the tunnel is completed, there will be no hoisting of dead weight, of ore and waste rock, nor will there be any pumping of water. The rock will fall down itself and can be delivered to the mills on Carson River for one twentieth of the present cost. Can there be any doubt of the utility of this tunnel? Why then can people be found to oppose this great and good work? I will try to explain to you the motives which actuate them. First, I will present to you an illustration of what is called Bill Sharon's Crooked Railroad. On the right hand, an imaginary section has been cut out of the mountain in order to show that portion of the Comstock load immediately beneath Virginia City, together with some of the shafts extending down the tunnel line, while it also shows the tunnel itself, marked B, at the mouth of which is the town of Sutro. Recollect now, under the present system of mining, the ore is hoisted from these deep shafts to the surface at Virginia City. It is there loaded on cars and carried over all the crooks and windings of this extraordinary railroad to Carson River, where the reduction mills are situated. After the tunnel shall be completed, the ore will fall down by its own gravity to the tunnel and will be carried over four miles of level railroad to the mills on Carson River, near the town of Sutro, marked D, instead of hoisting it up 2,000 feet to Virginia and carrying it over this crooked railroad a distance of over 20 miles. This railroad, after leaving Virginia City, passes by the town of Gold Hill and then crooks and winds about in every direction until it reaches Carson River, where most of the reduction mills are located, principally owned by the same parties who own this railroad. I will next exhibit to you that famous woodpile. You will say that there is nothing extraordinary in a woodpile, but I will assure you that this is the most significant one, 
and a long tail is attached thereunto. This pile contains 600 cords of firewood, which is daily carried from Carson River over that crooked railroad to Virginia City, where it is consumed in making steam for the numerous steam engines used in hoisting the ore and pumping out the water. After the tunnel should be completed, there will be no more pumping and hoisting, and hence this wood can no longer be sold. Now, since the parties who own this wood make $5 on every cord, which is equal to $3,000 in gold, clear profit per day, which they would lose after the completion of the tunnel, they are opposed to its construction and throw every possible obstacle in its way. These same parties also own that crooked railroad which clears $2,000 every day in the year. Besides that, they also own a number of mills on Carson River, which have the capacity of reducing 1,000 tons of rock per day, and since it only costs $5 per ton to reduce this ore, while they charge $12, it leaves them a clear profit of $7,000 daily, besides the tailings which they claim as their own, and which are said to contain more silver than it extracted from the ore itself. Thus, by a simple calculation, we have $2,000 a day profit on that railroad, $7,000 every day profit on milling, which makes $9,000, and to that added $3,000 profit on the sale of wood, we get a net profit of $12,000 per day. $12,000 every day amounts to a profit of $4,380,000 for the year. That is where the whole secret of the opposition lies. That is what makes all their flunkies and hirelings oppose this great work, and a portion of that $12,000 per day is used to employ a thousand professional liars by the year to misrepresent the merits of this magnificent undertaking and for the purpose of vilifying me. Some of these professionals you find about your own camp. Many you find in San Francisco, others in the city of New York, and a great number in the city of Washington. And they have even reached as far as London and Paris. But not only do they employ these thousand professionals, but that $12,000 per day has also been used in buying up the flunky press of California and Nevada. These hireling newspapers do the bidding of their masters. They shape their whole course as they are told to do by them and tell falsehoods at so much apiece. They receive $500 or $1,000 or even $10,000 and when they think they have misrepresented enough for the money received, they go to their employers and ask for more. And if their demands are not responded to, they threaten to go back on their masters and so they have to be bought over and over again. This is the way in which the public have for years been deceived and misled. But the day has come when all this villainy will be exposed. The question will be asked, why do these mining companies allow themselves to be thus swindled? Why do they keep on pumping and paying enormous rates for firewood, for transportation and for the reduction of ores? I will let in a ray of daylight, open your eyes, 
and show you how the public is gulled and swindled from year to year by these cormorants. You well know that the mines on the Comstock load are used for stock gambling purposes. There is a natural propensity in the human family to gamble. You see it illustrated by the eagerness with which people invest in lottery tickets, where the chances for getting the big prize are equal to diving your hand into a sack of white beans where one black one is concealed and fishing for that single black one. Still, people will gamble, notwithstanding frequent and heavy losses, especially men of small means, and so when you have $1,000, you tell a stockbroker to invest it for you in so many shares of stock. But people of a gambling disposition are never satisfied with the means at their command. He who has $1,000 in cash to invest in stock wants to buy $2,000 worth. Paying $1,000 on account will buy the other $1,000 worth, while, as security, the purchased stock is pledged. Thus, the stock which has been bought remains in the hands of the brokers at San Francisco. These, again, have connections with the Bank of California, and a large portion of this stock is left with the bank in order again to obtain loans for themselves. At the end of the year, when the elections take place, this bank has in its hands sufficient pledged stock to control the election of offices of nearly all the different mining companies on the Comstock load. Now, are you verdant enough to suppose that this California bank ring, as it is commonly called, place a board of trustees in charge of these mines to work them in the interest of the stockholders? No, indeed. They elect a set of pliant tools who are placed there to work these mines in the interest of that crooked railroad, those mills, and that woodpile. They are placed there to subserve the interests of the bank ring, no matter what may become of the stockholders. And whom do you suppose they select as superintendent of the mine? Do you suppose they select a man who has nothing but the interests of the stockholders at heart? Do you suppose they select a man well-versed in the science of mining? Not by any means. They select a man who is willing to do the bidding of these trustees, and who will work the mine in the interest of the clique which employs him. So the superintendent carefully watches the explorations in the mine, and if a rich discovery is made, he instantly telegraphs to the trustees in San Francisco, who in hot haste start for Virginia City, and here you have them before you in the mine. They are all armed with magnifying glasses, examining ore and looking very wise, while at the same time they cannot tell a piece of ore from a piece of grindstone. Still, they have seen the assays of the ore, and they know its value. In their delight at the rich haul of ore they have made, they send for baskets of champagne, while the miners stand on one side smiling at the prospect of a good time before them. Now, do you suppose that these men mean to fulfill their duty as trustees and make known to the stockholders that this rich discovery has been made? Far from it. They give directions immediately to put in a blast or two to cover up the rich strike, while they treat the miners to champagne and promise them $1,000 or more apiece in order to keep their mouths shut. And what do these honest trustees do next? Why, they set the miners at work in the wrong direction, 
taking out a little ore and a great deal of country rock. This verseless rock is hoisted out of these deep shafts, carried over that crooked railroad and reduced at the mills at a great profit to the ring, while the mine itself runs in debt. And what is the result? When the mine runs behind, assessments are levied, and you, the victims, are swindled out of your property, for you have to pay those assessments or be sold out. Possibly you do have the means to pay the first assessment, but it is almost certain that another will be levied the next month, and then you have to sacrifice your stock at a low rate, for it keeps going down with every assessment, and nobody wants to own stock in a non-paying mine. The stock goes down lower and lower, and after you, the stockholders, are compelled to part with your stock, this ring steps in and buys it all up after it has reached its lowest point. And no sooner have they managed to get hold of nearly all the stock at mere nominal figures. Say a week or two later, this greater discovery of ore is announced, and the world looks on and says, what a lot of lucky fellows they are. This is the way these stock manipulations have been carried on for years. This is the manner in which you have been cheated and swindled. But you will ask, how is it possible to carry on these operations year after year? How can men be found to try it again after they have once been bitten? The simple truth of it is, there is a fresh crop of fools every year. And the manipulators understand this so well that they are as certain of their harvest as the farmer is of his. Who, then, is at the head of this ring, which has been robbing and swindling the people of the Pacific coast for so many years? Who? It is this same man, Sharon, who has now the assurance to come before you and ask you to elevate him to the high and honorable position of United States Senator from the state of Nevada. He proposes to return to you a small portion of the wealth which he has filched from you. He wants you to sell your manhood, your honor, your right of suffrage for so many pieces of silver. If you have a grain of manhood left about you, you will repudiate the proposition. You will drive from your midst the man who has sunk so low as to sell his friends and his country by voting for the elevation of his person to an exalted station, who should be despised by all the people and who should be punished for the long list of crimes he has committed. This man is responsible for half the suicides which are committed on this coast. He is responsible for the presence of one half the lunatics in our insane asylums, and the curses of the widows and orphans are upon him. You, the descendants of the revolutionary fathers who fought and bled for the high privilege of exercising the right of suffrage, are you going to disgrace yourselves in the eyes of the people of the United States? by placing a man in that high position who boasts that he can buy every man and woman in the state of Nevada? I hope and know that the falsehood will be hurled back in his teeth, and that on the 3rd of November every one of you will make it your sacred duty to be at the polls, to cast the vote which will repudiate him forever and ever. 
Do you know how this man Sharon commenced his career in California? Why, he was one of the board of aldermen in San Francisco, who at the time of the admission of California into the Union voted himself and his fellow aldermen a gold medal worth $150 for the services they had rendered the city of San Francisco. People talk about back pay and salary grabbers. Why, the man who committed this act is liable to do most anything. And if you ever allow him to take a seat in the United States Senate, the people had better guard what is lying around loose, for it might be apt to disappear. The field of operations of this clique has become too small on the Pacific coast, and they want to extend it to the city of Washington, so they may have the whole United States to operate upon. They want to get their hands into the United States Treasury. Woe to the people of our state and of the whole Union, if these men ever get the upper hand. Goodbye to your liberties. Goodbye to the rights of private individuals. Goodbye to the protection of the poor. Let these parties be victorious, and you will soon have nothing but the worst kind of a moneyed oligarchy which will find result in despotism, upsetting all your cherished liberties and dearest rights. It is not only the private ambition of this one man which is to be feared, but his power for evil will be almost unlimited, for he represents the moneyed interests of the Pacific coast, which all center in the Bank of California. It is the interest of this bank, the interest of the Central Pacific Railroad Company, the interest of the Pacific Mail Steamship Company, all of whom this man represents, to flood this country with coolies, and then goodbye to the interests of white labor and the rights of citizens. You will be planting the seeds of contention, and in the end we will have another bloody war of races. How do these parties propose to achieve their ends? They have managed in one way and another to get control of the whole organization of the Republican Party in the state of Nevada. And while I, myself, feel proud to have been a Republican ever since the party organized, I repudiate the party as it now exists in our state under the control of the rings whose sole object is to trample underfoot the rights of the people and use the party for their own aggrandizement. It will be useless for you to vote the Republican ticket in the hope of securing the choice of a fitting candidate for the United States Senate at the coming election for the moment you elect a Republican legislature. This man, Sharon, walks into the United States Senate in spite of all the opposition to him by the people. How is it with the Democratic Party? While that party is not altogether owned and controlled by this Bank of California, the latter has managed, notwithstanding, to buy up most of the Democratic papers published in this state. They have managed to get on their side many of the leading men of that party. Can you afford to support the Democratic Party under these circumstances? Fellow citizens, I think not. The time has come for you to cut loose from the old political organization. Let all the good men, the honest men in the Republican ranks, and the good and honest men in the Democratic ranks, join hands and unite in the Independent Party. Let all these good citizens repudiate the old political ties, form a solid phalanx, 
and on election day utterly rout and annihilate as your enemies the men who are trying to enslave you. I say it is the duty of every good and honest man to join the independent party. I know that it may result in great hardships in many portions of our state if labouring men were to express their opinions openly against the rings. I know that we are ruled with an iron rod, a species of despotism more contemptible and atrocious than any of which we read in history. I know full well that in Virginia City, merchants and businessmen dare not express their political opinions for fear of being ostracized and driven out by the Bank of California. I know full well that it is worth a laboring man's bread and butter to express an opinion contrary to that of the masters who employ him. But, fortunately, the last legislature has framed an election law by which this ring can no longer control elections. Under that law, all tickets must be printed on the same colored paper, and no one is allowed to approach within 100 feet of the polls for the purpose of influencing voters. Under that law, fellow citizens, you have the privilege of expressing your opinions as you see fit. It may be wise to say nothing as to how you intend to vote in order to escape the wrath of your employers. I know that you are freemen and that your pride in your manhood will not permit you to cast your vote for these men who are trying to more effectually oppress you. I know you will cast your vote for the independent party's ticket, consisting of the best men selected from both the old parties, and that the day of freedom will dawn upon the people of this state, and on the 3rd of November next, when it will be known that the bank ring has been overthrown, and their power broken forever. The hireling press employed by these men has ridiculed the organization of an independent party. They sneer at the small number which they claim compose it. It is true that on the surface it only appears as if we were but a handful, but thousands will vote the independent ticket who for prudential reasons do not show their hand. But as sure as the election day arrives, just so sure will the number of independents roll up to such an extent as to bring terror and dismay into the enemy's ranks. There are 3,000 miners and laboring men in Story County who will do their duty on election day. Do not be misled then by the efforts of the enemy, who is trying to impress you with the belief that you cannot succeed. Let all the miners, mechanics and laboring men stand in together and victory will be yours. Fellow citizens, I hope you will pardon me for having made so lengthy a digression concerning the political situation. But when I came to speak of the crooked railroad, that woodpile, those stock-swindling operations, the results from which are so largely applied to the shaping of our present political contest, I could not help denouncing the iniquities of the whole system. I will now resume the thread of my discourse on mines and mining, and will first refer to the manner of extracting ore after the Sutro Tunnel will be completed. As I have stated, the ore under the present system has to be hoisted at an enormous expense from shafts 2,000 feet in depth. After the tunnel shall be completed, instead of hoisting the ore, it may be dumped into the shafts as is shown on the right hand of figure 29, where the shaft is provided with the alternate projections on each side into which the ore may be dumped from any of the drifts, 
which allows it to gradually slide into bins on the tunnel level, from which cars load themselves by opening a gate. In this wise, the ore can be delivered from the mine to the mills near the mouth of the tunnel at a cost of 15 cents per ton, while the cost is now three or four dollars per ton. Then, again, the descending ore may be turned into a motive power by having a double compartment shaft in which a wire cable is passed around a double pulley provided with a brake, B, which is regulated by a single man who supplies the place of the ponderous steam engine. The ore coming in cars, E, from different galleries, is placed upon the cage and by its own gravity it descends, while at the same time it pulls up in the other compartment the men and timbers or any material that may be required at the different stations. The man at the brake, B, is informed by the man, G, in one of the galleries, when to stop the downward motion of the car by pulling the string connected with the signal bell, H, while the indicator, I, shows at what point the car shall be stopped. Then, again, after these shafts shall have reached below the tunnel level, each descending ton of rock from above may be made to hoist from below the tunnel level a corresponding weight to the tunnel level, and thus you will see every descending ton of ore is turned into a useful motive power. In that wise, mining can be carried on at its minimum cost. In the mines of Europe, where deep tunnels have been constructed, the water which accumulates in the upper portions of the mines is turned into motive power. This is shown in the next illustration, scene number 30. We have a water tank, A, situated, say, 1,000 feet above the tunnel level, in which all the water from above that point collects. From one of these tanks, the iron pipe, B, is carried down to the tunnel level where a turbine or an ordinary water wheel, C, is driven by the water, discharged from the pipe, and with a pressure of 1,000 feet, the power created by a limited quantity of water even is quite considerable. This water wheel connects with pumps, which in turn pumps the water from the tank, E, from below the tunnel level into the tunnel, where it runs off by its own motion at the point F, together with the water discharged from the wheel. Thus, you will see that the very water which is now the great enemy of mining is turned into a most useful and economical power, which will enable us to conduct mining operations at a great depth at less cost that could possibly be done from the surface. By the same power, the ore may be hoisted from below the tunnel level into the tunnel. There is nothing new about the proposition of making deep district tunnels connecting with all the mines. Such tunnels have been constructed in the mines of Europe for the last thousand years. And if you will cast a glance at the next illustration giving a second national view of the Harz Mountains in Germany, we find a great number of tunnels which have been constructed in that locality from century to century. More than a dozen tunnels have been constructed up to the beginning of this century, at which time the deep gorge tunnel was completed with a length of six miles and a half, which was the longest and deepest tunnel then existing in the world. About 20 years ago, the engineers of this great mining district made an examination and found that by starting a little town called Jeteld, 
another tunnel could be constructed, which would cut the mines 300 feet below the deep gorge tunnel, but which was found to require a length of 14 miles. After the most careful investigations and profound consideration of the subject, this tunnel was commenced, called after the late king of Hanover, the Erust August Tunnel, and completed about eight years ago. At that time, the shafts in these mines had reached from 1,000 to 1,500 feet below the level of the proposed tunnel. In order to save 300 feet of pumping, this tunnel, 14 miles in length, was constructed. If we consider then that they found it advantageous to run a tunnel 14 miles in length to save 300 feet of pumping in a mining district where mines only produce every year what the Comstock load produces every fortnight, and in a country where labor is cheap, how can it be doubted that a tunnel to the Comstock load, only four miles in length, which will save 2,000 feet of pumping, is not only desirable, but must be considered an absolute mining necessity. I have already explained the motives of the men who oppose this great work. I shall now proceed to treat upon a subject which may be considered the most important one in connection with mining. I refer to the subject of ventilation. You all know that even in ordinary cottages, by lighting a fire in a grate, a considerable draft is created through the chimney. You also know that if you have a factory chimney 200 feet in height, the draft through it is much stronger. Now, suppose you had a chimney 2,000 feet in height, the draft through that chimney would be something tremendous. These mining shafts on the Comstock load, after being connected with the tunnel, would act precisely as chimneys do. The hot air from the bottoms of these shafts will rise with great force, while the fresh, cool air will rush in through the tunnel and replace the partial vacuum formed by the ascending column of air. It has been said that while the air coming in through the tunnel would ventilate the shafts and the workings above that point, it would be impossible to bring about a natural ventilation below the tunnel level. This opinion, however, is based upon an error. It is quite easy to carry this fresh air to any given point. By closing one of these shafts, E, at the tunnel level, allowing a sheet iron pipe to penetrate this partition, which pipe descending to the bottom of the shaft at C and to the end of the drift, D, the hot air will rise up immediately from the point where the men are at work at C and D into the shaft, E, which has a height of 2,000 feet to the surface. Thus, a partial vacuum is formed at the points C and D, into which the fresh, cool air rushes from the tunnel A and descends in the direction of the arrow at B. In this wise, air may be carried to any given point in the mine below the tunnel level, which is not only a great saving pecuniarily, but in a humanitarian view is of the first importance. It is a well-known fact that in the lower workings of the Comstock load, the thermometer stands as high as 120 degrees, and the miners become so exhausted that it is a common occurrence for them to faint away before they can reach a point where some fresh air may be obtained. As many as four and five men are employed on a single pick. That is to say, one miner takes the pick and works five minutes, when he is so completely exhausted 
that he has to retire to a point near the shaft and recuperate, relinquishing his pick to another miner who works five minutes, and so on. Thus it will be seen that a day's labor at such points costs as much as twenty dollars, and even at points where a man can do a full eight hours' work, their labor is not as efficient as it would be had they pure, fresh air to breathe. Since three thousand miners are employed at four dollars per day, amounting to twelve thousand dollars daily, and since they are unable to do over two-thirds the work, with the thermometer even 100 degrees, than they could were it only at 75 degrees, the actual loper day is $4,000. But this is only the dollar and cents view of the question. There is another view to take, and a more important one, one which should be considered above all others. There is the humanitarian view, the view which looks to the health of the laboring miners at work in the bowels of the earth. Investigations by committees appointed by the British Parliament show that annually 42% of the miners employed die of what is called miners' consumption, superinduced by working in close, heated air of shafts and drifts, the want of sufficient oxygen and the great changes of temperature through which they have to pass in ascending from their heated working station to the cold air on the surface. Many miners, robust and strong, do not feel the effects for the first year or two, after which time, however, they often begin to complain, and though not knowing what ails them, but the seeds of consumption have been sown, and these men fall early victims to the foul air which, alas, they have breathed too long. In travelling about the agricultural counties you frequently meet with vivid illustrations of what I have just stated, and while the masters of the California bank ring are driving about with six in hand, what do they care for the sufferings of the miner, who, standing along the roadside, broken down with consumption though young in years, lingers out a miserable existence until death relieves him from his sufferings in this world? Miners pursue an arduous and a dangerous calling, and they well earn their four dollars per day. They not only perform a full day's labor, but at the same time are exposed to all kinds of danger. Read the papers of Virginia City, and how often do you see accounts of the falling of timbers upon and crushing the miners, either killing them outright or maiming them for life? How often do we read of explosions where men approaching under the impression that the blast has already gone off have rocks hurled upon them suddenly, breaking their limbs and crippling them for life or killing them outright? How often does it occur that even small rocks falling down the shafts upon the men descending in the buckets cause them to lose their hold, precipitating them to the bottom of the shaft where their crushed and mangled remains are afterward found? But the greatest misfortune which can befall the miner is the breaking out of a fire in the mines. A sad instance we had a few years ago in one of the mines on the Comstock Lode, the Yellow Jacket, where 42 miners met with a sudden and terrible death. You all recollect that great fire, which breaking out on the 1,100-foot level, cut off all escape for the men below, and so their wives and children stood at the top of the shaft, uttering heart-rending shrieks and calling to their husbands and fathers in the mine, it was impossible to give them aid, and everyone perished. Now, had the tunnel at that time been completed, these men, though the shaft timbers might have been burning above their heads, 
could have descended to the tunnel level, entered the cars, and been carried to the mouth of the tunnel, where their overjoyed friends and relatives would have received them and returned thanks for the deliverance. Is it not clear, then, why all the miners and laboring men are in the favor of the speedy completion of this great work? They are the friends of this magnificent undertaking, while the men who claim to be their masters, who control the mines, employ their ill-gotten millions against the completion of the Sutro Tunnel and the best interests of the laboring classes. Fellow citizens, the managers of this hydra-headed monster, the Bank of California, which, like the devil fish, has stretched out its slimy arms and grasped everything within its reach, have long looked with a coveting eye on the Sutro Tunnel. They know full well that they cannot deprive us of our vested rights solemnly granted to us by the United States government. They know that Congress never would knowingly consent to take from us any rights which we now possess. And they know, in addition, that if Congress should unwittingly pass any legislation which tend to accomplish that result, the courts would, in the end, protect us. They know all this. But they also perceive that we are engaged in a work gigantic in its proportions, one fraught with great difficulties and requiring millions of dollars for its completion. Why then, it may be asked, do they continue their machinations? Why do they continually endeavor to get some law passed by Congress adverse to our interests? The answer is simply this. They see that in the future this enterprise will pay largely, and their whole aim and object is to destroy our credit in order to prevent us from securing the necessary means to complete our work and by embroiling us in litigation. By thus persistently attacking us, they hope to frighten capitalists and keep us from obtaining the money which they suppose is needed. Then, when we become worried out, they expect us to step into our shoes and line their pockets with the results which will flow from our great work. Fortunately, our financial affairs have been so far secured that we are enabled to keep up the work until we make such developments as will make it self-sustaining and secure our financial future. They know that works of this magnitude and character have never been carried out before by private enterprise. They know that it took the joint contributions of the governments of France and Italy to construct the Montsinus Tunnel. They know that the St. Gotthard Tunnel is being constructed jointly by the governments of Germany, of Switzerland and Italy. They know that it took all the power of the state of Massachusetts to bring the Husak Tunnel to completion. They know that all the great tunnels of Freiburg were constructed out of the treasury of the King of Saxony and that those of the Hearts were built by the King of Hanover from his treasury. While our work, more important still and of greater magnitude than any of them, has never received the aid of a single dollar from either country, state or the United States. But we are struggling along as a private company and expect to accomplish our work as such. These parties who now are and who for years have been persecuting us will stoop to anything to accomplish their nefarious schemes. Nothing is too villainous for them to do if they but think that they can thereby further their own ends. Their misrepresentations are so outrageous and so inconsistent that they in fact defeat themselves. They fall to the ground by the weight of their own absurdities. 
It may, however, be advisable for me to reply on this occasion to some of the statements which have been made by the bank ring stipendiaries. One of the arguments which they advance against us and the prosecution of our great work is that the work is not feasible and will never be completed. And almost in the same breath, they give utterance to the straddling intelligence that its completion is going to destroy the towns of Virginia City and Gold Hill. This is admirable consistency, surely. If the work be not feasible and will never be completed, how can it be possible that Virginia City and Gold Hill will be affected? This objection is urged simply to array against us the persons owning real estate in these two places. There are many people who reflect but little for themselves and readily believe what they are told by the scheming and designing men. Every miner in the country knows that the completion of the Sutro Tunnel will inaugurate a new era in mining, that the tunnel will form a great highway under the mountain, with numerous branches and a complete system of rock-paved streets and avenues extending in every direction 2,000 feet beneath the surface of Virginia City. And in the mines where two or three thousand men now find employment, fifteen or twenty thousand will then have room to work. And, in fact, it will be an underground world by itself. Instead of Virginia City and Gold Hill becoming the abode of bats and owls, I venture to predict that the population will be more than double what it is now. The history of mining has taught us that mines will at some time reach a depth where it will be utterly impossible to work them. Mining is not like farming. The farmer may sow and gather crop after crop and at last exhaust his land. But by proper manuring and allowing it rest for a time, it again becomes as rich as before and once more returns its accustomed yield. Mining is different. A mine, once exhausted, will never recuperate. The rich treasures once extracted, they are gone forever. And for that reason, the older nations of Europe have introduced systems of mining by which all ores, even of the lowest grades, are economized. Here a system exists, which has properly been called piratical mining, under which the rich ores are extracted in order to make large dividends, while the lower-grade ores are left behind. A careful examination has revealed the fact that at this day there are $50 million worth of low-grade ores in the Comstock, which have been passed by in the eager search for rich rock. This system will in the end impoverish any mining district, no matter what may be its value. Such headlong haste to get riches will only cause the mines to give out sooner. What then will become of Virginia City and Gold Hill if this pernicious system is continued but a short time longer? The certain failure of the mining interests will kill both places. Already some of the shafts have reached a depth of 2,000 feet and they cannot go much farther without better ventilation. Already the heat and the closeness of these places at this depth have become unbearable and miners cannot perform their work. The time is not far off when no man can be found to work in the purgatory for four dollars per day or at any other price, for it would be more than physical endurance can stand. In five or ten years, these mines will be exhausted to such a depth as to make them valueless. And then where will be your city? The permanence of this place depends upon the mines. As long as they last, just so long will Virginia last. 
When they fail, then will Virginia fail. How then can any man have the hardihood to state that the Sutro Tunnel is going to destroy this place? The tunnel will enable the miners to work the mines for a hundred years beyond the time now allotted to them under the present circumstances, and as Virginia goes with the mines, Virginia will have its existence, a flourishing and prosperous one, continued just so much longer. Instead of a population of 15,000 as at present, your numbers will be 25,000. The permanency of the town once established, real estate will grow more valuable, while the farms and the ranches in the western part of the state, whose owners depend upon the mines for the sale of their productions, will advance in value fourfold. The amount of taxable property of the whole state will more than double after the completion of the tunnel, thus reducing the burden of taxation one half. Everything depends upon the permanency of the mines, and I think I have demonstrated to you that the only thing that can make them permanent is the Sutro Tunnel. Fellow citizens, this bank ring sees the great value of the Sutro Tunnel, and for that reason alone, excited by an intense cupidity, fostered by the corrupt associations and the rotten schemes of its managers, they want to steal the tunnel and to divert the public attention from themselves. They spread the absurd falsehood that it will destroy Virginia City and Gold Hill. They have over and over again attempted to take from us our legal rights by deliberately planned and well-executed and underhanded schemes, but have every time signally failed. The bank ring has so arranged the present political contest that if the Democratic Party carries the legislature, Thomas H. Williams will go to the United States Senate and the Bank of California and the Central Pacific Railroad will have in him just as good a representative as they desire. But on the other hand, the great ringmaster himself, the generous Moses of Nevada, William Sharon, declares that his agents whom he sent to Washington before Bill Stewart and Jim Nye have proved themselves inefficient and don't know how to break up the Sutro Tunnel. This great manipulator of the mines proposes to go there himself and attend to business personally. He boasts that he, assisted by his numerous allies, will yet succeed in driving us to the wall. How he is going to do it, the Lord only knows, but he has a general idea that all mankind are purchasable, and so he expects to apply a million of his stealings to that purpose." He doubtless thinks that he can buy a sufficient number of the members of both houses to put through anything he wants, but I think he will find his mistake. The only security the people of this Senate has is to vote the independent legislative ticket. I do hope the people of Story County especially will vote that ticket, and I have no doubt that there are more than 2,000 miners and laboring men in this county who from fear publicly profess to be for Sharon but who will cast their vote for the independence. It is now for you to say whether you will permit this man, Bill Sharon, to take a place among the greatest and the noblest of the land solely for the purpose of pushing his own swindling operators in his own manner. Will you bow down in reverence and obedience to the moneyed interests represented by William Sharon and Thomas H. Williams? I think not. I trust 
that on election day, the free, independent American citizens of this county and state will march to the polls and cast the ballot for the independence, which will emancipate our fair land from the deathly grasp of this tyrannical ring and restore truth and honesty to their former places in the hearts of the people of Nevada. <laughs>